Welcome to the online teaching ministry of Dry Run Baptist Church. For more content, visit us online at dryrunbaptist.org. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 16 is where we'll pick up today. If you think hard about it, there are really two worlds. There is the world like you wished it was and the world that really is. And a lot of our struggle is that the world as it really is is not like the world that we wished it was. And we've just been, I know it's been a couple weeks, but we've been here in Ecclesiastes. And we've got good news that God is put eternity in the hearts of men and he's making everything beautiful in his time. That's such good news. But here comes the hard part. A lot of stuff's still ugly. A lot of stuff is still ugly. So we know that all things work together for good, according to Romans 8, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Ecclesiastes 3, that he's making everything beautiful in his time. And yet, how do you live in an ugly world while everything's not made beautiful yet? How do you live in a world that looks like me when you wish you loved, lived in a world that looked like my wife? Let me make it, paint you a picture like that for you, right? How do you live in a world that looks like this when you wish it looked like my wife? What do you do when you get me when you wish you got her? You know, like that discouragement is what he begins to address in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. If you are there and able, I ask that you stand in honor of the reading of the word of the Lord. We aren't going to read the entire thing, but uh, just a little small portion of it in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. In verse 4, this is also vanity and a striving after wind. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm." But how can one keep warm and alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-fold cord is not quickly 
broken. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would give us grace to be content because of you. We pray that you would help us, that you'd have mercy on us, that you would do a work among your people on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, that you would use these words from your scripture to change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You all can be seated. So if he's getting ready to tell us how to live in an ugly world, we might as well call it like he sees it. And that's what we do first. Uh, that the world is unjust. The world is unjust. Or as we say back in Moorhead, it ain't right. It ain't right. And you notice this in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So God is making everything beautiful in his time. But Solomon looks out at the world and he says, I see under the sun or life apart from God down here, the place where we live, right? And where there should be justice, there is not justice. There is something deep inside of us that really wishes that wasn't the case. Our little boy was, back a long, long time ago, he was four. He's not big like he is now, but we were playing a game, Paw Patrol Sorry, if you're curious, and he won, and he pumps his fist up in the air and he says, hooray for justice. That's right. That's right. Hooray for justice. Why? Because deep, deep down in us, we know, we developed this early, there is right and there is wrong, and right is supposed to be what prevails. Right is supposed to prevail. Wrong's not supposed to get the last word. We know that there's right and wrong, and right's supposed to win. Wrong's supposed to lose. That's not the case. That's not the case. There's a problem that Solomon highlights that those who are supposed to rectify evil in the world are themselves evil. Who's running this thing? Evil people. Evil people. Who's running the world system? Evil men and women. That's our problem. So where there was supposed to be justice, there wasn't justice. Where there is supposed to be righteousness, there is not righteousness. Semi-famous Old Testament scholar Walt Kaiser says that the place that there ought to be righteousness that he's talking about here in verse 17, 16 and 17, the place that's supposed to be righteous is the people of God. The people of God. So the equivalent to what he's talking about in verse 16 is that in the government that should make everything right, there's wickedness. There's a wicked government. And amongst the people of God, where there ought to be holiness and righteousness, there's wickedness. There's wickedness in the government. There's wickedness in the church. That's what he looks out at and he sees. So you've you got to hand it to him, right? Part of the reason that it stinks to live under the sun 
It's because the people running this place are evil and the people who are supposed to be living right are living wrong. That's why he paints such a dark picture under the sun. That's why. Here's his evaluation of this twisted system in verse 17. He said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So he comforts himself by repeating what he's already told us, that there's a time and a season and a place for everything under heaven. But the point he makes here is that there is coming a time and a place in which that God will judge the wicked government and the wicked church. That is what he tells us here. So that means everyone from popes to pastors to prosecutors alike are all going to stand before God and be judged for how they lived on the earth. That's what he's telling us right here. He, he says this wickedness that we see one day will be remedied by God. And, and we know this, right? And we know that we just can't fix what's broken down here. There's mass shootings and mass atrocities. And then they get this guy before a judge. And they sentence him to death. And he gives one life for the many he's taken. Or they give him a life sentence in prison. Or multiple life sentences in prison. Problem is he's only got one to give. He's only got one to give. So whether he's, he gets put to death or lives the rest of his life in prison, if he takes a bunch of lives, he only has one to give in return. And so the justice and the courts and the judges down here can't make right what went wrong. They just can't do it. True justice doesn't really happen under the sun. And let me tell you what's worse. One reason it does, doesn't happen is because of the people who are, are, are wronged. I used to be a newspaper reporter, and I drew the short straw, so I had to show up at the city council meetings. That's what the low total poll guy does. He goes to the city council back in the day, back in that place. And one of the council members got in trouble in the meeting, and he got reprimanded because after every meeting, they'd say the pledge, and he'd say, for, for liberty and justice for all who can afford it. He put that on the end of the pledge, right? There's liberty and justice for all who can afford it. So they reprimanded the man and they said, you can't add to the pledge like that. But you know what? He's right. He is right. Not all the time. But sometimes he's right. Sometimes right. If you have the right size bank account, you can afford justice for yourself, right? And, and we know that's true, right? All the people in prison aren't criminals. And all the people who are free, it doesn't mean because they're free that they're not a criminal. Right? There's criminals walking out there and innocent people put away. We know that works like that. That's just how the world is. If you got a good lawyer, you can get out of some stuff that if you got a court-appointed one, that you're just in for it. Right? We know the world is like that in the here and the now but the good news is of what he's talking about here in ecclesiastes chapter 3 is that god is going to make right all of these things that went wrong that's what he's going to do he's going to judge the injustice of the world not only that he's going to do something with it in verse 18 you see what he's going to do with it and what he's what is he doing with all of these things 
Well, I've got more bad news for you. Verse 18 says, God is testing them with all of this injustice to show them that they all die like animals. They die like dogs. That's what he says here. We all die like dogs on a crooked planet that we lived in before we got there. Same worms eat you that's going to eat your dog. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday to you, right? Verse 20 says that all go to the grave. You came from the dust and you're going back to it from dust to dust. Here it is. Here's what he tells them to do about it. So what do we do about it, right? There's sin in the church and sin in the government and everything's wrong and some things get made right, but some you can't. And we all die like animals on this broken ground that we all walk on. Well, what, what do we do about it? Well, verse 22. He said, So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what's after him? So God is making everything beautiful in his time, but the, the world is all ugly around us. So what does he tell us to do? He says to find joy in what's right there in front of you. Right? The world around you is a wicked, bad place to live. Barely inhabitable, right? We saw a thing in science uh, discovered a planet that's in another place that's potentially in a Goldilocks zone, right? Where it's not too cold, not too hot, and water can run liquid. They think there could be a place. Bad news is, is the world he describes in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this place is barely inhabitable. And you know what? If we went and got on a spaceship and went to that one, we would do the same thing there. We'd trash that place too if we could get to it. So what do we do when the world around us looks like this? Well, he tells us not to focus necessarily on the world around you, but what's right in front of you. There's nothing better than that you should rejoice in the work. And this is your lot. What is your lot? It is the situation that you find yourself in that you should find joy in that. Because the world ain't right. Just focus on the little things, what you got right in front of you. Because you know what? You don't know what comes next. That's what he says. It's kind of a speculation in verse 22. Who can bring man to see what comes after him? Like, how do you know? Like, why are you focusing on what's in front of you? Because you don't know what's behind that. Why, why should you focus on what's in front of you and find joy in this very sit, situation that you're in? Because you don't know what's next. It could be worse. <laughs> I laugh out of nervousness. I worked with a guy who said he stayed with his wife because the next one could be worse. And she was probably very joyful about being married to him. I'm sure he seemed like a really great guy to be married to if that's the motivation for why he stayed in the marriage because the next one could be worse. That's kind of the attitude here in second in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 22 is why do you focus and be content right now? Because you don't know what's ahead. You don't know what's next. Who can bring you to see what's after what you got right now? The world's broken that you're in. But you know, 
here's what, why there's hope, even though it says this in verse 22. Because what he's talking about in verse 22 is speculation. Who knows what's next? Find joy in what you got. Everything around you is bad. Find joy in what's in front of you. Doing what's in front of you because you don't know what comes after that. Let's not speculate. But here, here's the thing. We know more than the wisest man who ever lived. That's who Solomon is. He's the wisest man who ever lived before the Lord Jesus got here. Let's qualify that. But we know more than Solomon. We can be wiser than Solomon because where Solomon has speculation, we as Christians have revelation. We know more than Solomon does because we have a completed revelation of our Bible. So we know the answer to the question posed in verse 22 of what's, who can bring you to know what's after that. We know that there's more than speculation and drudgery. We know that the Lord Jesus will one day raise us out of the ground. We know that there is resurrection. We know that, God, that we love God and He's working all things toward good. And even if they kill us and they put us to death, He's going to bring us up. He's going to bring us back. So we, we don't need to speculate with Solomon. We don't need the speculation when we have revelation that tells us more than he knows. But still, though, right? Still, even though this is kind of like half the answer here in verse 22 to our, our problems, is that focus on what you got here. Everything there is bad. Focus on this now, because you don't know what's next. Asking these questions will put us in the right direction, because it will focus us on what is here and now. Because he goes on and elaborates, and it kind of even gets worse, because the world is unjust, in these first five verses that we're looking at. And it's also oppressive. It's also oppressive. Look at verse 1 in chapter 4 as we cross over into that. It says, And again I saw the oppression that, that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So he looks out at the world that we're living in, and there's a lot of oppression going on. There are a lot of people who are hurting and no one cares about them. They cry and the tears dry on their face because nobody's there to wipe them away. And you know who's making them cry and oppressing them? The people who have the power. That's just life. That's not the world that we wished we lived in. That is the world, my friends, that we do live in. And he reflects on this. And he goes, you know what's better than dealing with the oppression and injustice in the world? It would even be better, right? Verse uh, 2 and 3 here, it'd be better to be dead than to have to deal with all this. And he's not saying, like, hide the sharp objects. And he's telling us that you know who is even better than those who are gone on? Those who are never born. The unborn and the dead are better. Why? Because I don't have to see this. I don't have to see this world like this. People that have gone on before are gone. And the people who are unborn aren't here yet. So both of them have an advantage. And here we are working like this. But verse 4 tells us why people work like this. Because you're envious of your neighbor. 
That's the motivation. All of this is vanity and chasing after wind. What's meaningless? Wickedness in the justice system. What's vanity? Meaninglessness in the church. And the oppression of the weak that goes on down here under the sun. It's what it is. That is the problem, my friends, that he addresses. That's his view of the world. It's a dark one. It's a dark one. So here, here, here's what happens. Here's what happens beginning in verse 5. We've got to do something about it. We've got to do something about it. How do we respond to this? Well, people start responding in different ways. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So in response to this injustice and wickedness and oppression of the weak, you know who the fool is? Fool's the one that folds his hands. What do you do when you fold your hands? You're done. You're done. The fool checks out. He checks out. I'm done with this world as it is. He's saying that's foolish and it's to his own destruction. He closes his hands and what is he eating? He is destroying himself, according to verse 5. Folds his hands, he's done, nothing means anything. The judges are corrupt, there's sin in the church. Let us disengage from all of these things. Solomon says that's foolish and destructive towards yourself. You don't work. You don't do what's in front of you. Don't do what's in front of you. The job you've been given, the roles that you have carried, whether that be something that you get paid for or something that you have in front of you to do. You disengage in it. And he's saying that this laziness is folly. It's folly. It's foolishness. Disengaging is harmful for you. You just can't check out because everything's bad. You just can't check out because everything's messed up down here because the world is unjust and it's oppressive. You just can't do that. No, instead he gives us something better in in verse 6, it says, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. So there's three things here. There is disengaging with the world because it's just too bad. I'm done. Wiping my hands. And another one would be two handfuls of toil. Here's what that means. Laziness is folly and destructive for you. Because you could overcorrect and just say, things are pretty bad, so I'm going to keep myself busy. I'm going to have two handfuls of toil here. I'm going to be a workaholic. I'm just going to keep my head down and fill my bank account. He says in verse 6 that that is striving after wind. He showed us before, he'll show us again. You can fill that bank account up and it's going to go to a lot of people who didn't work for it. And I don't mean the government. I mean whoever you give it to after you die. Either way, right? You ain't getting it. If you're getting it, you ain't keeping it. <laughs> so there's these two errors here, right? Laziness is wrong. Because it's self-destructive. Be, being a workaholic is wrong. 
because it's grabbing something that you can't really keep. You see how both of these are wrong? You shouldn't be married to your couch. You shouldn't be married to your job. Both of those marriages are wrong. You shouldn't be lazy. You shouldn't be a workaholic. Addicted to work. Consumed by work. You shouldn't be either one of those things. You can't do that. One's going to burn you up and one's going to leave you empty. Either way. Now, we see laziness, we see a broken world, and we might be tempted to just swim down in to our jobs. We might be tempted, or roles that, that we have. We might be tempted to do those things. And we say, just a little bit more overtime, just another shift, I'll be all right. Just another hour on this project, then another hour after that. And he calls it two handfuls of toil, getting all that you can get. And then he offers us a better way in verse 6, smack dab in the middle of this laziness and this workaholism. It's right there in the middle. And I believe it's the main point of the passage, is that in this corrupt world that we should enjoy our work. We're not lazy. We're not consumed. We're just enjoying what's in front of us. That's why I'm beginning in verse 6. He shows us how to enjoy our work. How to enjoy what's in front of us in our life. How do we do that? Well, we should enjoy our work with contentment. Contentment in verse 6. Six, contentment. So we don't give up. We don't give in to the rat race like everyone else. It's better to have enough instead of all you can get. You realize that? And they're like, that's going to do something for me. When I, when, I, when I grab onto that and I understand that, that having enough is way better than all you can get. That's why you push away from the table. That's why you push away from your job. That's why you push away from all kinds of things that are threatening to consume you in your life. That having enough is better than all you can get. It's better. And why does he say this? Because he's already told us the pursuit of more is not going to do it for us. It is chasing after wind. Two handfuls of toil is chasing after wind. Here's what Solomon words it in Proverbs 30 that we read earlier in the service. He says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the, Lord, the name of the Lord our God, my God. He says, I don't want to be rich and I don't want to be poor. I just want to have enough. Because if I'm rich... I might think that I have done something to create the prosperity in my life by talent or working hard that I've done. And I might be ungrateful because I've got too much and I think that I've accumulated these things. Or, if I don't have enough, I might be tempted to go around the legal system in order to provide for myself. Both of these things make the Lord look bad. You trying to get all you can get shows your neighbor, your spouse, and your friends that you don't trust the Lord to provide. 
you trying to go around, cut corners, steal, shows the Lord. It shows everyone that you don't trust the Lord to provide for you. Stealing and accumulating. Both affect the way the Lord looks, according to Proverbs 30. That's why he says, just give me enough. Just provide for me what is necessary for me. That's another way of saying the same thing that Solomon says here. So instead of folding your hands or laziness and chasing after everything that you can get, instead of doing those things, get a handful of quietness. I mean, we have three kids in our house now. I don't know what planet. Maybe that viable planet in the Goldilocks zone has a handful of quietness on it. A brother could, you know, spend a dime or two on, you know what I'm saying? Because I don't have that on this planet at the moment, you know? What's he talking about? What's that even mean? Well, in the con- we've got to use our context clues, detectives, as we look here at Ecclesiastes. The handful of quietness is the exact opposite of toil. Toiling with both hands. One commentator calls it contentment. Being peaceful and composed. He's working hard enough to have the handful that he needs and he's at peace with it. Have you been able to do that? As we were praying earlier, contentment is a big deal. Because you see, God set his love on this group of people. And then they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And then when he went to rescue those people, they began to grumble against the Lord who was rescuing them out of slavery. And you know what? They all died in the wilderness for that sin. Do you think that grumbling is something that God takes seriously? If he's willing to kill a whole generation of people over complaining? Do you think he takes it seriously? I mean, a whole generation of men and women just gone, wiped away. Why? Because the Lord wasn't enough for them. And what he was doing for them wasn't enough for them. And what he was giving them wasn't enough for them. So he wiped them away. So the question for us, are we going to be satisfied in the Lord with the handful of quietness that he offers us? Or are we going to try to get that toil with both hands? Because he tells us that we should endure, enjoy our work with contentment. Not only that, we should enjoy our work with community. Let's put this another way, right? We should enjoy our work with what we have and who we have to share it with. What we got and who we got. What we have to received and who we have to share it with. How do we do that? Well, beginning in verses 7 and 8, he talks about a guy that's by himself. About a guy that's by himself. And he's never satisfied. And he's just busy working. And he works and he works and he works. And he never stops to ask the question, who am I going to share this with? He's too busy working to live. I don't know about you, but I've been there before. Working several jobs, making, what I, at the time, what I thought was a good amount of money to never do anything with or with anyone else. 
because I wasn't content and I wasn't worried about community. But he's telling us that that is how we ought to live in this ugly world. So what do we do because the world's ugly? Be content with what you have and who you have to share it with and share it with someone else. There's a warning for isolation and greed here in this verse. Isolation and greed will be harmful for us. There's too much striving for his two hands to be able to stop and evaluate his life as to whether or not it was worth it in the first place. Is it really worth it? I think Solomon would tell us it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Because then verse 9, he gives us the reason you should be content with what you have and share it with the people around you. The reason there is right there in verse 9. Why? Because if you fall, somebody can pick you up. If you fall and you're alone, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. If it's cold the only, and there's no other body heat there, you're in trouble. Someone tries to fight against you, backup is always a good thing. It's always a good thing. He says the threefold cord is not quickly broken. And I don't know how many weddings you've been to, but I've been to several, and then they talk about that. That, that is helpful for marriage, right? But to apply it, apply it directly, a threefold cord, that would have to be polygamy if you're doing the math at home, right? So this threefold cord is talking more than about someone and their spouse. Now that's a good principle, right? That you, someone with you can help you but a threefold cord not being quickly broken means that you're going to need more than a spouse. The more, the merrier is what he's talking about here. He shows us a picture of someone who's working with no one to share it with, what they get out of it, and he shows us a better way. And what is the better way? Community. Community is the better way. And he prov it provides help in verse 10. It provides comfort in verse 11. It provides security in verse 12. This is a stark contrast from the one who's working alone. No, it doesn't work when you're alone. You can get more done and more out of it with more people involved. So we, in the New Testament, right, we, we're people with full Bibles. In the New Testament, we see this principle completely carried out further in which that you were never meant to walk alone in your life. If someone's single, it doesn't mean that that person's meant to walk alone in their life. Never. You're never meant to be alone. Like Adam there in the garden, and God goes, it's not good for that one to be alone. Fast forward into our day, it's not good for that one to be alone. It's not. It's not. And now there's the principle of the church. Who do you know that could provide help, comfort, and security in a community? It's meant to be the body of believers. It's meant to be the body of believers that provides these things. And you know what? It's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. Or he uses threefold cord. Meaning people ought to be so close together that it makes them stronger because they are together. So not only should we be seeking comfort, security, and help from the body of believers, 
but we ought to be seeking to provide those things to the people in the church. Right? Because, I mean, people come into the church seeking community, right? You've seen that and noticed that, right? Someone comes to us for help. Someone comes to us for comfort and security. The question is, are they going to find it? Like, are we going to be the kind of person in which that we are seeking those in the body or in the community that needs comfort, help, and security? Because they could seek for it out there, but I think that we've already seen that it's, they're not going to get it. Why? Because the world is unjust. The world is oppressive. That's why we should do this in here. There's corruption in the courts. There's corruption in churches. Where there's supposed to be justice, there isn't justice. Where there's supposed to be righteousness, there's not righteousness. We need to stand with each other against these things. So the world's a corrupt place. Enjoy your work in it, though. Enjoy what you have, who you have it with. Because there's, there's a little illustration that begins here in verse 13. Because there's all this destruction and trouble. And then verse 13, there's an underdog story. And I was curious about why he, why he would put that in there. Well, because there's oppression and injustice in the world and things don't go the way it should be. So be content with what you have and who you have to have it with. But just maybe, what about the underdog? What about the one that doesn't have community and, and isn't content and they don't have what they need? And then they rise to the top in success. What about him? Could he make it? Could he make it in the middle of this broken world? Could somebody just cut through all of that and make it by themselves with what they have? Well, according to verse 13, there was one who did. One who rose to the top. Verse 14, talking about this poor and wise youth, he went from prison to the throne and through his own kingdom he though he had been poor, saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, of all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after wind. So you could be that underdog that's not content and that keeps going. But you know what? you're going to catch wind and you're not going to be able to hold on to it. That is vanity and a striving after wind. So we should enjoy our work with contentment and community in this corrupt world is what we ought to do. Jesus told a story that about what's at stake in this contentment in Luke 12. And I think you all have probably heard it before. There was a rich man who had a big harvest. So he questions himself. I've got all of these things. What am I going to do with it? I got an idea. Why don't I tear down my barns and build bigger barns? Why don't I do that? Well, in Luke 12, 19, he talks to himself. 
And he says, I've got enough to live for many, many years. Why don't I relax, eat, drink, and be merry? Why don't I just do that? Why don't I just live it up while I got it? But God interrupts him, saying, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus closes the story saying, this is what it's like for those people who lay up treasure for themselves and aren't rich towards God. This is for the person who gets those two hands of toil as opposed to what God provides. You see, you could always get more, keep it for yourself, but then it's going to go away and then you will stand before God And here's the, the problem. If God was your treasure, you'd be at peace with what you have. If God was your treasure, if you really treasured God, if you were rich towards God, you'd already be so full that you wouldn't go striving after wind. That's what you would do. If you saw God as worthy like this, that's what you would do. Otherwise, you're overcompensating because God doesn't appear to be enough for you he's not giving you enough that you got to go get it yourself here's the thing this is how worthy that god is he is holy and righteous and just and perfect in all of his ways he created man in his own image in his image he created them male and female he created them man decided to get for himself what he thought God was holding back from him. He tried to grab his two hands of toil in the garden when Adam and Eve ate from the tree that God told him not to eat from. So everyone from Adam on fell. Everyone tried to grab what they could get, bypassing God. The Bible calls that sin. The good news is, is that God became a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lived the perfect life. Dying on the cross for our sin and rising on the third day. That is how valuable that God is. That he would give his son. And his son would raise. And he would provide us with everything we need. So therefore... Today, I'm encouraging us to take what God provides in the person of the Lord Jesus instead of trying to get for ourselves what we could get. You see, the issue is that we're pursuing double-fisted accumulation of stuff that one day will be pried from our cold, dead hands and given to another. Ecclesiastes 3 would tell us to stop from this striving and be content with what we have and who we have to share it with because the world around us is going down. So I'm going to pray in just a second and as we respond, I encourage us to respond this way of repentance over our grumbling. I'm the first and the worst. The first and the worst. I just preached 
uh, a funeral last week and they talked to, about a lady and somebody's like, with everything that she's dealing with, I never heard her complain. And I was thankful in those moments that those people didn't hang around me. You know? Because what, what would they say then? He never stops complaining. It's never good enough for him. He's always trying to grab with two hands and hold on to things. He's never satisfied. He always complains. Is that what they would say of our life? I think it might be for me, but I don't want it to be. So I invite you to repent with me of this grumbling and to find contentment in a God who is worthy of all of our praise and honor and glory. So let's pray.